Hello, welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library. This is Dan Galadner, and I'll be your host today. We are recording in the Ruther Library on Wayne State University's campus in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. Um, today is going to be a fun episode. It's the spooktacular episode. We're not talking labor history. We're not talking Wayne State University history. We're talking more about the fun of Detroit and the collections we have that talk about folklore, witches, ghosts, and werewolves. Troy, do you do you believe in ghosts? The supernatural? The um, things that go bump in the night? No, but uh, when I do hear a bump in the night, uh, then I am creeped out. So, no, but yes. Yeah, same with me. And that what keeps the folklore, urban legends alive. We just don't really know but it's fun. We're going to talk to Elizabeth Clemens, our extraordinarily awesome AV archivist. I think we're mostly talking ghosts, witches, and werewolves of Detroit. And we're going to talk to Bart Bilmer about a local celebrity during the 70s and 80s who was a witch. So let's get started. Hi, Lizzie. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Good. How are you? You ready to talk some cool stuff? I am so ready. <laughs> You're born ready. <laughs> I was born to do this. Awesome. Well, first, tell us what the Folklore Archive is all about. So the Folklore Archive was established in 1939 and contains one of the world's oldest and largest records of urban folk traditions in the United States. At its core are thousands of student field research projects that cover a broad range of topics, and these typically consist of transcripts of oral interviews conducted by the students as part of their research. It also includes audio recordings and photographs to a lesser extent. The collection, strong in modern industrial and occupational folklore, reflects the rich ethnic diversity and work-oriented heritage of Detroit and southeastern Michigan. Now, these student field projects covered a wide range of topics, and many of them deal with cultural traditions, beliefs, and stories that different ethnic groups brought with them when they emigrated to the city. So there is a rich body of research dealing with folk medicine, superstition, and what we're going to talk about today, stories of the supernatural. Mm-hmm. Now, are, these, are these interviews mostly transcribed, or are they all like audio? audio? Uh, the majority of the field reports, they don't have the audio with them. They're transcribed. At one point, they may have, but only um, a select group actually survived and made it into the archive. Well, we're lucky enough to have you tell us about some great stories. So let's get started with the first story, The Werewolf of Gross Point. Okay, so let's just start off by saying um, a lot of Detroit's early folklore comes to us courtesy of either the French or our Native American tribes or the French who stole elements of Native American legend. The Lucru is a great example of a story that has changed over time. It always has the same basic elements. There is a motherless, pious maiden who's stolen by uh, Le Lucru, which is French for a werewolf. But the outcomes and circumstances always change. In the oldest account, the story takes place in the later 17th century, in the area that's now known as Gross Point. But at the time, it was little more than uh, forest and swamp. A trapper lived there with his daughter named Genevieve, and she was gentle and kind. And of course, she wanted to join a convent at Three Rivers when she was of age. At some point, she came across a young man named Jacques, who immediately fell in love with her. She, of course, refused him because she wanted to become a nun. He, of course, wouldn't take no for an answer. So he went into the forest and met a witch, and they came up with a deal. 
He would sell his soul to the devil in exchange for the means to take Genevieve away. And by doing that, he would become a werewolf. So one day, uh, Jack was going through the woods and he found Genevieve in the forest. He chased her down to the shore of Lake St. Clair, where she'd built a small grotto in honor of the Virgin Mary. She ran into the grotto, crying to God for help. And when he chased her and touched the holy place, he was turned to stone. The stone, which resembles a wolf, stayed there for many years until it was later relocated. You can find it now up on the corner of Kirby and Shelfont in Gross Point Farms in front of the waterworks. The version of the story that we have in the folklore archives, right. though, is a little different. I read at least four different versions of it, but this one uh, changes pretty much everything. Well, that's it, the nature of folklore stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So in the more modern version, which was collected in 1978, so almost 300 years after it supposedly happened, um, the young woman is no longer wanting to become a nun. She falls in love with another farmer. Uh-huh. And um, the Luke Guru doesn't necessarily know her. He just likes young maidens. So she marries this young man, and at their wedding party, on their way out of the um, home where they're having the party, the werewolf comes and grabs her. No, no. And he runs off into the forest with her, and everybody's shocked. And they don't know what to do, and they stand there stupidly for a few minutes. And then they're like, we should go find her. (laughs) Um, So they run through the swamps, and they don't find her ever. The husband comes back. He's mad with grief. All he has is a piece of her wedding dress. Mm. And he goes and retires for like a year in sadness. Now, a year later, his uh, sister's getting married. So he gets out of bed, and he goes to the party. And the Luke Rue shows up again because he wants to steal another young maiden. This time people are with it, and they actually chase him through the forest. And they chase him down to the uh, the edge of Lake St. Clair. And when he hits the water, some sort of giant fish jumps out and eats him. <laughs> right? <laughs> but before he jumped into the water and got eaten by this giant fish, <laughs> um, he stepped on a rock. And in the rock um, is uh, his paw prints. Oh. Now, I've actually seen this rock. Yeah. And if you look really closely, you can you can see kind of like a little paw print. Cool. And if you really want to look at it, you can kind of say it looks like a wolf if you're really trying. You could also say erosion has uh, changed right, right, the form. Right. Um, but that's basically the story of the loop grew. I like that one. Yeah, it's fun. I like the one better where she lives, though. Yeah, well, happier ending there. That's pretty good. But I do like the big fish. Yeah, in in the specific in the in the folklore archive one, they say it was a giant fish came and ate him. And in another version I read, it's specifically a giant catfish. Uh, of course. So more details there. Yeah, I don't know if we have like Arapaima or something up in the lakes back then, but <laughs> All right, next one, the one I've read from from the folklore is a little more modern, the ghost of Tanglewood Bridge on Belle Isle. Yeah, so this one um, is something that kind of, it's a ghost story, but it kind of falls into urban legend because it's one of those where, you know, people like to go out and they would try and find um, where this took place. And, you know, it's, it's more of a, a teenage thing. Yeah, exactly. A teenage love type thing. Yeah. Although I don't know how they did it because it took me the longest time to try and find out where Tanglewood I wanted Bridge to, was. Yeah. Do you know where it is? I think I found it. <laughs> <laughs> it's So I know where – I figured out where Tanglewood Drive is on, right. on Belle Isle um, by using some old maps. And I found a bridge that goes off it, but it's not labeled as the Tanglewood Bridge. 
And there's another one that seems like it could be it. Okay. So anyways, I took a picture of it. It's on the blog post that I, that this is all based off of. You okay. can find it on our website. So I'm assuming this is the haunted bridge, but you never know. <laughs> everybody has to show up. And all right, tell the story now. Everybody will show up honking at different bridges. <laughs> okay. So this story uh, takes place on Belle Isle. And if you're unfamiliar with Detroit, Belle Isle is an island that's in the middle of the Detroit River. It's right between uh, Detroit and Canada. It's now a state park. It's one of uh, the city's oldest parks. It has a lot of local folklore tied to it um, specifically, but this is a more modern story. Um, We believe it took place in the 1950s. And um, what I'm going to read is an analysis of a story that was collected by Dave Spybrook in 1969 and involves a haunting on Belle Isle. This is a classic white lady story in which a woman in white haunts a location in search of something lost. So the story of the ghost of the Tanglewood Bridge concerns a lady who is in an accident on or around the bridge and was thrown through the window of a car into the rocks below into the woods. The ghost, however, is not the young lady killed in the accident, but rather her mother, who comes to the bridge every night to search for her daughter. The lady always seems to come back around midnight each night, dressed completely in white. The mother was coming back to look for her daughter, who had been killed. The ghost is always seen on the bridge or in the woods surrounding the bridge. The ghost sometimes comes right up to the car to look in to see if her daughter's in the car and may tap on the window of the car to try to get in. There are other stories um, that are tied to this bridge um, that don't appear in the in the folklore archives, but are just kind of part of our um, urban legends here. We have a white lady of Tanglewood Drive who's known to respond to young drivers who honk three times into the night. And when they do that, she comes out and tries to lure them into the woods. Other folklore has her as the daughter of Chief Sleeping Bear, who is placed on the island for her protection and given the gift of immortality and the the ability to change into a white doe. Now, if you've ever been to Belle Isle, you'll notice they have a huge um, population of albino deer, which are now kept locked up at the nature zoo. Uh, But that might be partially where um, this story comes from, the presence of this, like, strange herd of deer. So, Tanglewood Bridge. I I wouldn't go there at night. No, no. (laughs) I've been there very early in the morning. It seemed like, you know, nighttime, but it's it's not a place to hang out, to honk your horn. Why tempt fate? Why tempt fate of having someone knock on your window? Right? Because that would be creepy. <laughs> it would be really creepy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Although I might be more scared of a person knocking. Yeah. One more thing. Belle Isle is now a state park. Before, when it was a city park, you could go there at any time of the night. Uh, but now it's closed, so you can't go there at midnight anymore to look for ghosts. So please be aware, if you go there looking for a ghost at midnight, you might be escorted off by the uh, state park police. Also, you have to pay a fee now to get in. Yes, unless you walk the MacArthur Bridge. You can walk in or or you can take the bus or bike in if you're looking to save some change. Anyway, after that PSA announcement. PSA, kids. I don't want you to get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there are quite a few ghost stories in the Folklore Archives. Um, And if you're looking for more, um, we have a blog post on our website that has quite a few. And there will be another one coming out. Cool. Um, that will have even more. We're doing the research on it right now. But a lot of the ghost stories that you have in there um, aren't aren't big legends uh, like werewolves and witches. 
it's just very personal accounts um, that come from people. And one of the ones that I thought was not necessarily the scariest, but the one I kind of like the most because it's uh, relatable. I think like maybe sometimes the sometimes the best ghost stories aren't the scariest ones; they're the ones that can touch you personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we all identify with those kind. Yeah, right. So this is a very simple ghost story. Um, it came from a woman who was living on McClellan Street, and if you're unfamiliar with that, it's on Detroit's east side. Um, and it was collected in 1966. And um, these were just her personal encounter, her personal uh, reflections of living in a home that she thought was haunted. So these are uh, direct quotes from the student field report. It was written, Before I lived on Larned, a woman died in the house where I moved in. My cousin Martha Ann and her son came to visit me. Martha Ann's son saw and described the dead woman perfectly. He'd never seen her alive. He described Rex's wife, and he ain't never seen her. She pulled the covers off the boy every night, and I know he saw her because he described her to me, a big old woman with long braids. The child told it plain as day that that was Rex's wife. I put a cross in there, and she quit visiting. Martha Ann used to whip her son because she thought he was lying, but the woman had been dead for three years, long before the boy got there. The woman had been coming back to see her baby. You see, that was her baby's room. That's where he was sleeping when she died. Oh, that's kind of bittersweet. It's sad. Yeah, it's sad, but it's also kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I love about that story. There's nothing crazy about it. It was just, there's a little boy. He keeps saying, are you seeing a woman? He's seeing a woman. She knew who the woman was because she knew who lived there before, but she didn't want to say anything. It's just something that she brings up later that she was she, she knew he was seeing the ghost right. of this woman. But couldn't say that at the moment for him. Yeah. But still, that's creepy. Yeah. Well, I'm more scared that the kid was getting beaten for seeing a ghost. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So there's one more you want to tell us, right? So, yes. I'm going to read the account that was uh, collected by the student. But it's really, this is one of my favorites because it's just really funny. It's about a really helpful witch. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just have to you just have to hear the story. It's just really great. Go for it. So the story goes, um, a witch lived with my grandmother. My grandma had 14 children and she did all the work. Every night that witch helped my grandma put the children to bed. The witch left her skin hanging on the wall and told my grandma not to let anybody touch that skin or she knew what would happen. And every night she went to the store, got everything which means food. She got every she got food out of the store and she took everything except for silver money. She fed the whole family. My aunt will tell you that. This old witch came by and asked for a place to stay. My grandma let her in and she stayed forever until one day she just went away. My grandma was scared to let her stay and scared to tell her to go. I heard if you put salt down, they'll go away, but grandma was scared beeped out of that woman. (laughs) (laughs) The witch stayed there and took care of the children until the children were grown. My oldest auntie said the skin hung on the wall and they knew not to touch it. That wasn't no joke. Don't care how my grandma locked that door. Don't care how late. When grandma woke up, the witch was there hauling in groceries. (laughs) See, that's a cute story. I love that. That's a great one. I, like I need that. I need a witch like that in my oh, life. Oh, we all need Maybe a witch. Maybe without like the skin hanging out on the wall. Yeah, the skin's gross, but 
I love how they tried to lock her out. You can't stop her. She's going to be helpful anyway. She's no. going to come in anyways, hauling in groceries. I got I to gotta feed the kids. You got a lot of kids here. I got to help out. The part of the story I love, though, is that there was a witch, and she was wandering around, and the grandma, she already had 14 kids, but she's like, yeah, come on in anyways. <laughs> right. I, got, I, got, uh, I got plenty. Come on in. Why not? Why not? Always room for one more. Jeez. Okay, that was Elizabeth Clemens. Troy, what did you think? Uh, I was creeped out by the witch's skin on the wall. That's creepy. <laughs> that is very weird. Uh, very creepy. Skin on the wall. I want no part of it. <laughs> no. oh, God. What was hanging on the wall? Like, presumably this was something that the kids could see hanging on the wall. What was it? Was it always there or was it kind of like a figment? thing it was, was something it j- mom was messing with them and saying don't mess with this stay out of my yeah. kitchen it maybe maybe or maybe it was you know like an animal skin or animal leather could be anything i don't know could just be a poncho <laughs> <laughs> and then you know over the years it's like oh, that skin that's kind of creepy a lot of questions i have i ha- i have many questions and no answers and you know what I don't think I want the answers. I think the story is more fun, uh, unexplained. Exactly like most folklore. Unexplained, creepy story, keeps you questioning. <laughs> and then the stories evolve. They turn into different things, but the skin is will remain. <laughs> I wonder how the kids turned out, actually. <laughs> Do they have issues with skins? Do they have issues with uh, keeping the doors open? Mm. I don't know. But now we're going to hear from Bart Bilmer, our lovely archivist who deals with Alba. Uh, what is it? The Airline Pilots. Yes. But he's also an amazing writer. And he wrote an article in Dangerous Minds, the website Dangerous Minds, uh, talking about Gundella, the good witch of Detroit. And a real witch, not a legend, not folklore. She actually is an existence. And a human being. Exactly. Anyway. Bart's back. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm just wonderful. We are here talking to Bart about the good witch of Detroit. Um, Gundela? Gundela. Gundela the Green Witch. That's right. She was born Marion Clark. And then she had a married name that she used. That name is even harder to pronounce, I think. It's K-U-C-L-O. It's like, I think it's Kuklo, but I'm almost afraid to say it on mic because I guess I just did. All right. First off. Where was she raised? Where where did she come from? Become a well, witch. Well, she was raised in Garden City, and uh, she wasn't born here, but she she was born in Port Huron during the uh, Great Depression, and then she moved to Garden City with her family, and she became a witch when she was eighteen. <laughs> kind of like a a witch is a Wicca's version of bar mitzvah. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, yeah, she became a witch. She found out at some point that she had a long line of witches in her family uh, going back to 16th, 17th century in Scotland. Oh, neat. Where uh, her ancestors were green witches. I mean, she was she was raised Protestant, actually. The Protestant part must have been just on one side of her family. Maybe her parents had some sort of agreement or yeah. something that when she was older, she would learn about the about the witches aspect of her in her family line. But can you imagine that learning that like when you're a teenager, like you have this line of witches going back hundreds of years. <laughs> well, I that mean, must've been a fun conversation. Yeah. They were green witches. So what's yes. a green witch? Well, there was three different types of witches at the time and they all used a color to distinguish themselves. 
And so her ancestors used like a green vegetable like coloring and they'd smear it on their faces. Uh, and that's how people knew they were green witches. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. So she, 18, became a witch and goes through the ceremony. She was a school teacher, but then some, how did she, be, how did she become a local legend? Well, sometime when she was around 40 or so, this would be the late 60s, she was at some sort of U of M um, gathering. So that's the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And she met a professor there, and he, he discovered that she was a witch. And he thought that was really interesting. And so eventually she started, because of him, she started teaching classes there. And then off-site, off-campus, she was um, doing some lectures about witchcraft. And then she started writing a local newspaper column in the mid-70s, 1975, which which appeared here. So that's really when she got a lot more famous from this newspaper column. People would uh, write her asking about, like, you know, sort of spells they could cast on their significant other or a potential <laughs> significant other that they were interested in for both men and women. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's how she got Became well known. And she, yeah, she was really well known. She was doing lecture series yep. all around, going to libraries. yeah, guest appearances. With kids. And it yep, seemed the kids, kids were not afraid of her. Yeah, there were kids just walk right up to her and talk to her. And uh, she seemed like a really easy person to get along with. Um, there's an interview that's online that's really interesting um, from the late 70s of her where she, she just talks freely about being a witch and that, you know, that it's all about the power within yourself. There's no special magic per se about being a witch. It's just what it's you're, you're projecting something you're, and the more you project the more likely you are to get people to do what you want them to do. Oh, power of the influence. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the way she described talking about a Ouija board where she was saying that, you know, maybe there are spirits, maybe they're not, we don't know. Sometimes they could influence, but it's mostly you personally influencing what is happening on the Ouija board. So right. I believe she really did believe this power within you. Right. And yeah, just it's it's all about like, yeah, believe, essentially believing in yourself, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's that's what she felt your power was. Well, no wonder she got along with kids so well. She was telling them, it's yeah. like, believe in yourself. These are cool yeah. things. And they were like going, oh, this is great. Someone's listening to me. Cool. Yay. Yeah. Cool green witch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and she also she didn't believe in good or bad witches, even though she was considered a good witch by the community. She felt it was the person that was good or bad, not if you were a witch. Oh, uh, okay. Cool. So there's good and bad people, not good and bad witches. Of course. Very simplistic kind of stuff yeah. if you think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So she had a newspaper column. Now, I, I learned about the her Ouija board idea from an interview. Did she have a radio program or did she make a record or did she do something? Because I've been hearing clips. She made a record. Um, yeah, she made a what collectors call a private press record. So it was just you know something that she put together with help from her son who did the music. So the, mu- the music is really cool and like appropriately spooky. But then she talks over it and she talks about spells, you know, that you can cast um, and talks about magic and just witchcraft in general and uh, – it's a really fun record to listen to, and it was reissued. Oh, it was reissued last year. Yeah, so people can find it online. Yes, cool. Yes. Uh, pressed on appropriately on a green vinyl. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice package. That is that's awesome. Yeah. That is yeah. awesome. So do you, do you, uh, well, you grew up in this area, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Do you remember her? 
I don't, which was striking to me, and I, I wrote about it in the article too, that when I heard about her, it was through – um, you know, just as a writer, I get emails and things from different, you know, record labels. And uh, I got this, I think, through a, uh, someone who was working publicity for the reissue of the Gundela record. And I was like, how have I not heard of this person? I yeah. was really surprised. But so that's part of what fascinated me. It was such a cool story anyway, and that she was from here made me all the more interested. Of course. So in your research, listening to her record, watching the YouTube clips, any good stories about her or anything that she would say that would be fun? To share with our podcast listeners. I did think in that interview, it was really, um, I think everyone should search that out. It's just like five minutes long or so. And if you search Gundela on YouTube, you should be able to find it pretty easily. But she's she's very funny. She's very self-deprecating. Um, she's she's serious when she's talking about witchcraft. But then other times she's, yeah, she's she's just a, seems like a really funny, warm person. Um, somebody I would have, yeah, liked to have known. Exactly. Unfortunately, she passed away. About 25 years ago, I think now in, in 93, she was about 63 years old when she when she passed. But she, yeah, she seems like a great person. I should add, though, before we sign off about Gundela, that we do have a couple of photographs in our collection. Um, uh, we have uh, two photographs of her from what I figure is from the early 70s. It's not dated, but um, one's with a student she had and another is just a, a shot of her. So you can find those on Virtual Motor City. Um, they are on the Virtual Motor City website. And if you want to learn more about the folklore archives that are housed here at the Walter P. Ruther Library, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks, Bart. You're welcome, Dan. It was fun. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Nearing. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. And a special thanks to Chelly Grande for Scary Night, today's background music, which mysteriously manages to be both spooky and cheerful at the same time, much like a helpful witch's skin hanging on the wall. You can find Chile Grande's Scary Night Track in the public domain on the Internet Archive. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> now that's getting kind of creepy. We could do a wolf. Ow. Are we ready? I don't think I'm ever ready for you, Dan. Ah, uh, so everybody check out Gundela. The Green Witch. Gundela. Gundela? Gundela? Right. Or is it Green Dilla? Green Dilla? <laughs> 
I love the podcast tradition of Dan mispronouncing names from how many times we say them. <laughs> that means Dilla. I'm really, yes, that but, means I'm really not listening to you guys. That's right. <laughs> I just think you should be more offended by that, Troy. I than, should. Than I, yeah. Do you have a ghost in your house? I do, Dan, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> okay, I'm just asking because I know Lynn's convinced we have, you know, a ghost in our house. Is she? Yeah. Yeah. Well, built in 29. There's a lot of people who've gone in and out. I mean, when I married my wife, moved into her house, she claimed that there was a toy guitar that was possessed <laughs> by one of her dead relatives. And yes, every once in a while it would start playing. That's creepy. It is creepy, but then when I went down and, ex- and investigated, I noticed the off switch didn't really go all the way off. But I didn't tell him that. 